Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. My name is Carrie Smith and I'm one of the hosts here. We are doing another episode of Book Club, which is where we come together and discuss books. We sort of alternate between fiction and nonfiction. This month we read Texit, which is nonfiction by Daniel Miller. And we're going to be talking about it today. And anticipation of this topic, uh, I took out all my Texas art and also... <laughs> Texas Tigers here to discuss with us. Beverly, can you add people in? This is silly. Uh, it's just me being silly. There's no one here to enjoy it. So, hello, guys. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hi so, we have a limit today. I just learned before the show because we're using StreamYard, we can only allow 10 people in the discussion at a time. And I think we are over our limit. So it, if uh, if everyone shows up, we might have to, Beverly might add someone late. If anyone wants to drop out, that's okay. Just let us know. And then um, she can let, she can add in whoever comes late. If you are not speaking, we just ask that you mute yourself so that there's no feedback. Um, and if you want, uh, why don't we start with talking just about our general thoughts about the book? I, uh, I'll go first and then we, I'll, I'll be quick and we can go around the, the room, but I'm very grateful for this book. It turned out to be a little bit different than what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was at first, I thought it was going to be very dense and like a history of secession and all these um, legal arguments for why a state leaving the union is, uh, is pot, first of all, possible. And second of all, sometimes necessary. It didn't turn out to be that. And I, I, I'm happy because it, I think this book is written for the average citizen to be able to pick it up and relate to it. And it does include precedent. It does include discussion of, of Supreme Court decisions. And it includes the words of our founders and stuff from the Federalist Papers and the Constitution and the Texas Constitution. But it's written for the layperson, which I really appreciate. And uh, after reading it, I feel I wanted to come out of it being more secure in or first of all, having an opinion on Texas. And I think I do now. And I feel a little bit more secure about that opinion. So uh, I like the book overall impression does anybody else want to introduce themselves and just give a give an overview of their thoughts on it i'm going to nominate keith the hat guy <laughs> all right i'll go first um i think it's one of my favorite books we've read so far we've read a lot of awesome books but i love this one uh daniel miller does a a great job of just debunking all of the objections for Texas leaving and for a state leaving. Um, he goes through like economics and trade and borders and national defense and social security and just one by one just eliminates every argument against it. Um, I liked how he, he, he just used will, uh, will secede. Um, he never said if, <laughs> it's just when and, and when it happens. He never says if it happens. Um, and my, you know, my opinion, like looking at all of world history, empires all end. Like all empires are temporarily, temporary. And uh, the bigger the empire, the harder they fall. And the U.S. is now the biggest empire in the world, so there's there's no reason to expect it to continue um, forever. So I don't know when. I wouldn't try to predict the future, but eventually the U.S. will break up. It has to. I mean, all history says it will. Anybody else want to jump in? I might unmute. Okay. Hi, I'm Sue, also known as Perky Sue. My husband, Larry, 
And I really liked the book. I liked how he arranged it. Uh, there is a fair amount of Texas history. He included the Constitution, the uh, Texas version of the Declaration of Independence, which I confess I had never read. Uh, the, thing, the, the singular thing that surprised me the most was his analysis of where and how the United States got the Pledge of Allegiance. I had no idea. I knew that uh, Under God had been added after uh, the McCarthy era, but beyond that, I didn't know anything about it. Um, so it, reading, reading the analysis gave me such a feeling of conflict that uh, right now we're not flying the American flag, we're just flying the Texas flag because I'm mulling it over. And then of course, the next day after I read that, uh, Andrew McCabe was reinstated with full honors and back pay and, um, and attorney's, fees. attorney's fees. And I was so not surprised, but really disgusted. At this point, I'm not inclined to put the US flag back up. The, I, I noticed what ha what Keith said. I noticed the same thing that he always spoke in the positive that Texas will succeed. When he wrote this book, uh, none of the current events had happened. Um, you know, right now we have a, a an invasion at our southern border, and it's it's bad and it's unrelenting and it's going to get worse. And if there if there were no other reasons to succeed, you know, that the, that would be it because the federal government has made it perfectly clear they are not going to protect the southern border. And that's a big part of what the federal government is supposed to do. They're supposed to protect the borders. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. You know, I'm, I'm sort of like you, Sue. I, uh, I have an American flag outside my house and it, it's still there, but I was thinking I might replace it with a Texas one because it really stood out to me sort of uh, talking about almost, almost like you can't serve two masters. Mm -hmm. And when you're in these situations where you're pledging allegiance to the flag, I also didn't know the history of the allegiance and who it was written by and why, at, at least the way he presents it, I had no idea. Um, but when you're pledging allegiance to one flag and, and, and those words that were written purposefully, one nation under God, I'm thinking about it now. I've never thought about those words really before. And now I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. What does it mean to say that pledge and then say the Texas one too? And how can you do both? So that chapter really stood out to me. Um, anyone who hasn't spoken yet want to give their thoughts on the book? Hand up. Who's that? Daniel. Hi, Gary. How Hi, Daniel. Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, so, yeah, I I think, Sue, you mentioned uh, also something that uh, really stuck with me about the book. Um, you know, I came originally from the UK to the States. Now, from outside the States, you do think of the States as being primarily a country and think of the States as being... I don't know, the equivalent of counties or whatever like, that we've had in the UK. But now I've been living here 20 years, it's clear that there's that there are 
significant cultural differences. And, uh, you know, it's taken uh, over the years. I spent a lot of time in California. I spent some time in South America. Um, you start to kind of appreciate that, that there's, there is more than one culture here. So it's a big, big country. And during the time I've been here also, you know, the UK has had it, its Brexit, which I did support. Uh, I, I thought that, that seemed to make a lot of sense to me. I was also very skeptical of, um, you know, that effort, effort, the European unification effort in the 1990s before I came to the States. But there's a reason I came to Texas and I live in Texas now. Um, and this this idea that, you know, this was intended to be a republic. I was familiar, long familiar with the idea that the different states were basically experiments. I mean, you could have all these experiments, like 50 of them or so, running in parallel, um, each with their own uh, approach, but protected under sort of one uh, sort of military umbrella, let's say, um, one foreign policy. Um, but I think we've kind of lost that. And, you know, like the uh, federal, the federal politics and the federal budget and federal laws just seems to be primarily dominating everything. You know, said out that 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 history and and particularly at that the point at which it switched from being primarily a uh, culture of a republican culture to a non-republican culture, um, I found um, pretty interesting. Thank you, Daniel. I love your I love your uh, your accent, being that you're a Texan, because I, I like that he talks about the diversity of Texans and also surprisingly diversity of Texans who support Texas. And anyway, I was like, wait, where's Daniel from? Oh, that's right, Texas. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, it's you know we we're all, we're all seeking a place in order to sort of like be who we want to be, uh, you know, around like-minded people. It's culture and... Um, Can I ask you, know, you a question? Your, your co-host does does talk about this a lot, about the importance of this kind of shared culture and outlook. And, um, so Carter, Carter talks about this a lot. And it's, if you've traveled around and lived a life, like, you know, everyone here, I believe, has, um, you, you're aware that, you know, cultures do differ and um, some are more productive and constructive and supportive um, uh, than others. And I, 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 do like the, I do like the Texas culture all in all. Daniel, what did you think about the Brexit part of the book or if anybody else wants to jump in? I, I personally really appreciated it because I think it helped me to to think of think about Texas as something different from the association with this word secession. He even makes that distinction. He's like, stop thinking about it as secession. Think about it as deciding to leave this agreement, this union that we decided to join. Now we're deciding to leave. Um, did anybody, did you or did anyone else, was that a new way of thinking about it? It, it was for me. Reminds me a lot of um, Carter's analogy of like a divorce. It doesn't have to be this you know big dramatical thing it can be the two parties peacefully agree to separate and i think he frames it as this is how it can be if if you want it to be and yeah i read the the book uh like keith said it was uh very interesting very well written very easy to read 
Um, I liked all the explanations. I, uh, one thing that I was thinking about now, take it with a grain of salt. I didn't go to school in the U.S. for grade school or elementary school or high school. So I don't know what is what kids are getting in education in terms of civics. But I think there's a huge need for people to really understand the history of how the U.S., the actual government and the system in the U.S. was done. The U.S. is such a great story in how it, how it started. It's an example for everybody in the world. Obviously, we have problems, you know, related to the power that government, federal government particularly gets. And that's probably one of the main reasons that uh, Mr. Miller is talking about, you know, the separation or the leaving the union for Texas. Um, I think he makes a very good, good case for it, uh, why it can be done. I think he is a little optimistic, though, in the way that he sees it turning out. My fear really is that it would be a lot harder and a lot more problems than you can envision because things never work the way you want them. And we, we can think, Hey, yeah, we can do this. Oh yeah. Everybody, everybody's going to be friendly and the U S is going to be friendly to Texas. You would think that's how it's going to be. But based on what we've seen happening over the last two years, it makes you wonder. So it's sort of scary in that respect, I think. And that's an opinion that I have. Um, I personally like the, the, solidarity that we all have. I think that obviously we do have a very big problem with government and the way that uh, the U.S. Uh, federal system is working. Um, if people understood it better, maybe there is something that could be done without having to break up the country. Because my fear also is that if Texas leaves, it's not going to be the only state leaving. The, the U.S., as we know it, is done. And then it the complications that brings on the world order is huge. Not just, I mean, we're, we're thinking how it's going to impact Texas individually, but what's going to happen to the world, right? The U.S. right now is the leader in the world. And uh, if we don't have the U.S. with everything that's not working right right now, what will what's the repercussions that can bring? So sorry for the editorial there. I just want to say that, like, so I did go to school here in the U.S., and they never taught us that civics is not a thing for millennials and younger. Mm -hmm. uh, that was That's an older idea. We get social studies, and it's crap. Uh, and one of the biggest problems, uh, I remember talking with someone of my generation about um, when they abolished uh, alcohol on the, you know, and they made con constitutional amendments about it. And he's like, why did they have to do that? Why, why is it an amendment when everything else is just done by federal law? And I said, because that is the only instance at the, where they, where the federal government actually followed the constitution and only put, um, you know, only took those powers that they put into the amendments. That's why it had to be an amendment. And now they've totally just said, screw that. We're just going to do whatever the hell we want. And so the prohibition makes sense when you realize that they're not supposed to do things like make drugs illegal on a federal level. Uh, they're not supposed to make these laws. And But most, especially my generation younger, we just 
we don't know these things because we don't have civics. Civics is not something we are taught. And the more I go out and learn these things myself, the angrier I get at how they've misled me <laughs> and how much they, they basic me and my generation and how they've basically made us complacent to this idea that the federal government is going to take more and more and more and more control and power over the state's lives, over the state's rights and individual lives. Like it, it drives me crazy that this is what's going on. And like, I didn't have a chance to have a say in it. You know, this, this started long before I came along and it really drives me crazy because when you really pay attention to the constitution, when you really pay attention to what people wanted for this country when they founded it, none of this makes sense what we what we have right now doesn't work now on the regard of like how if the if the u.s breaks up how does that affect things in the long run uh i heard some people saying that oh if states break off then they'll be swallowed by bigger fish and i was like i see that as a distinction without a difference at this time because how are we not currently swallowed <laughs> by a big fish uh and then at the same time um like what the fish that currently has us, I don't think it has our best interests at heart. And um, I don't think it has the world's best interests at heart either. Uh, and that's where I stand on, on that point. Alex, your point about not learning civics is a really good one too, because that's also how we get all these people on social media in the past couple of weeks saying federal laws, Trump state law, just as a blanket statement. And that's not actually accurate. I mean, it does in some things and it doesn't in other things or shouldn't in other things. Also, uh, uh, Larry just put in the, the text over to the side. Larry, do you want to tell people what you put over here? Because I think that's interesting. Oh, well, I'm, I'm old. So when, uh, when I was in high school, <clears throat> in order to graduate, you actually had to pass some classes. Yeah. Give them the date. And the uh, you you had to take one semester of civics and you had to pass it. And the second semester was American government, and you had to pass that class also. Of course, I graduated uh, in uh, 1972, so that's like 80 years ago, I think. Is that the before before times? Because they're calling anything pre-COVID <laughs> the before times. <laughs> uh, I, I graduated in 1976 in Southern California, and we did not have to take civics. Uh, we did have to take American government. Um, Daniel, what, what state are you in? I mean, not Daniel, um, Alex. Alex, what state are you in? I'm in Arizona. <laughs> okay, thank you. Daniel, you had something? Yeah, that, yeah, a couple of things. Was just uh, what I was typing out was that the the argument against Texas as a viable country and as a viable independent country uh, that doesn't make sense at any level. I mean, we've got a substantial population, thirty million people, um, a substantial uh, domestic product uh, that like the amount of uh, stuff produced, but also uh, this incredible diversity of industries and self-sufficiency. 
Um, but even if that wasn't the case, I mean, I could see maybe you know New Hampshire is also a, a, a candidate for us, uh, an exit. I agree. Secession is not the right word. It's, it's uh, closer to what the British exit was from the European Union. Um, I mean, you, you see there are plenty of very successful small countries. I mean, when you take you know, Singapore or Switzerland or whatever, um, you don't need huge populations or huge domestic products in order to um, sustain yourself and you know, for, for that independence. So, um, the, the, the other thing that was, uh, occurred to me, I mean, there's this, this principle of devolution, like that um, power should be devolved down to the smallest um, entity possible. So th this is the sort of like uh, fundamental belief of what I would have called liberal, uh, liberalism, but I guess we call it libertarianism now is the idea that, you know, the sovereignty lies with the individual first and then things what there are certain things that need to be pulled up to the family or to the community or to the town to the um you know the, the, the larger organization the city and then the country um but those things should only be pulled up reluctantly like the, the default is not that you start you, you start ruling at a global level or at a continent level um, so, the, you know, regardless of what the system is, is you know, I want, want to live under a system where as much authority lies in the individual, freedoms lie in the individual, and then grow up from there. Whereas I feel that really be the starting assumption of, you know, now the United States and what's happening outside the United States is that that's not the case. Is that everything should be national or supranational? That's the that's you know, quite legitimate, quite the globalist, um, the globalist agenda. And so um, I see something like Texas as being a move in the right direction. And hopefully the culture of Texas that would inform what that country would be would also uh, reflect itself in terms of you know, individual liberties. Let me... Let me just ask a question of you guys uh, that I, I wanted to see if you agreed with the what the book had to say about this. There's a part where you just kind of mentioned a little bit that um, where he talks about how, and, and Carter's talked about this before too, how you don't need a majority to change the culture. And he quotes the Social Cognitive Network's Academic Research Center uh, saying that when just 10% of the population holds an unshakable belief, their belief will always be adopted by the majority of a society. And so given that the majority of people in Texas support Texit, uh, at least in polls, you know, majority of Republicans do, almost half of Democrats do, and then, I mean, almost half of independents do, and then I think it was around 30% of Democrats do. Um, why haven't we, if all you need is 10%, you know, he poses the question, why hasn't it become a reality? Does anybody want to take a stab at articulating why they think that is, either using what the reasons he gave in the book or your own reasons? The, I would say the first reason hasn't happened is that there's a lot of pushback against it. So they haven't managed to get the vote as a referendum. So a real vote hasn't been held. Um, and that's a hard thing to do because you've got to get it through the major parties 
who run the, even the Texas legislature. Um, so I, I think that's the number one reason a vote hasn't happened. Um, as far as the argument of Texas standing alone, like some of the things, you know, for, for people who didn't read the book that are listening, like Texas would have the 10th largest GDP in the world. Like Texas is not a little place. It's got a huge border, huge border with, it would have a huge border with two different countries, big sea border. It's the biggest energy producer in the, in the United States by a factor of two. It's like bigger than England and energy. Um, there's no reason to think Texas couldn't survive on its own. Um, on, on the question of like what people think, I love Daniel's uh, question about what would you do today if Texas was an independent nation, totally independent, and they put a referendum that said, do you want to join the United States? Like, how would that come out? Knowing what you know about the United States, um, I, I think the answer would be no. There's no way you would join. I live in Florida. There's no way. I don't think Florida would vote to join. Um, but as far as uh, the, the final thing I'll say, I'll let it go. Um, the last year and a half, I think, backs up what Daniel said about the 10% and 90%. Like, people just go along with whatever they're told. So if 10% of the people are really adamant, like, okay, Texas is going to leave the union and here's why, um, the other 90% will, whatever they take, they'll put their mask on, they'll, they'll get their shot, they'll, they'll go along, okay, because they just want to go home and drink beer and watch Netflix and go to work and they don't care about any of this. If you just say you're going to leave them alone, I don't know if 10% is the right number, but you see the uh, freedom things, the 3% is always a the number they use from the revolution. So it actually only takes 3%. I don't know if it's 3% or 10% or 20% is probably too high because, you know, 80% of the people easily conservative estimates just go along with whatever the flow is. I I agree. And I think it, Daniel just put in the chat, Daniel, do you want to talk about that? If yeah. not, I do. Yeah, no, this, is, this, is, this is something, actually. Yeah. Yeah, not not my idea. Actually, I got it from Trish Wood. Um, uh, she she made this point recently. Is that um, like you know everyone in Hollywood or you know the Hollywood scene knew that um, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein um, was a sexual predator for, for decades. I mean, it had been joked about or whatever. But there's a difference between a majority believing or ten percent believing and a kind of an awareness that everyone else knows and is willing to step forward and act. And um, this is why you can actually build, build up quite a substantial um, implicit support for something without it becoming explicit. And then suddenly when that changes, as we saw with the, you know, Harvey Weinstein, it happens in many, many cases, that suddenly everybody speaks up at the same moment. It's not like everybody found out about that. It's just something that, that triggers once you look around and you're aware that there is a, there actually is a movement. This is the difference between a movement and just a, a sort of like silent support. It's one of the reasons why kind of anonymous elections are such a powerful thing potentially because it allows people to discover the, the, the majority without actually having to sort of put themselves at risk and step forward in, in a way that could be uncomfortable or infeasible for you know, their, 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 their life. Uh, I wanted, I've, I've had this thought on and off. Um, when it comes to the idea of, of leaving the union, the last time states left the union, uh, 
about 800,000 people died. And I have to wonder if that's part of the reluctances that uh, a war would be devastating. Uh, this time it's not gonna be 800,000 people. But what uh, Daniel Miller pointed out is that the Soviet Union broke up and there was no war. It was, um, I can't remember the time frame, but it, it didn't take that long, I think under two years. And I might be wrong on that, so don't quote me, but, um, and by and large, by mutual agreement, of course, it was different circumstances. People were starving to death and they were just done being told by Mother Russia how to live their lives. But here, um, we're relatively affluent compared to the rest of the world. And Texas is actually relatively affluent compared to about one third of the states. Um, anyway, but that that's, it's occurred to me on and off that people might be afraid of a war and what that means. Yes, he and I think he makes the case, that's also been something I've been afraid of. And I think he makes a good case that that's, he doesn't think that's what would happen. He thinks they will let us go, mm -hmm. that they would let a state go rather than start firing on their own citizens. And he lays out a number of reasons that I thought were pretty compelling mm -hmm. that I have to think about it some more, but I think might have shifted my opinion because up until I read this book, I was thinking they wouldn't let us go without a fight. But now I, I think sort to of, take the position, yeah, to to take the position that the war is inevitable. Um, first off, you have to assume that the current president uh, is as evil as Lincoln, which I, I mean there hasn't been one that bad for a long time. Um, I don't think that he would tells happen. Tell how you really so feel about Lincoln. The question. Uh, Lincoln's, well, I use two criteria for the worst president in history. So one criteria is to expand the federal government unconstitutionally beyond what it's allowed to do. Uh, Lincoln wins on that one. And also the second criteria is who got the most Americans killed by their, by their actions. Lincoln wins on that one too. So it isn't even a question who the worst president is. Um, so my point is like, you have to imagine that Biden would send the Air Force to and nuke Austin. Like, do you think Biden would nuclear bomb Austin? If I, I don't think, I think we've I only think he'll do that. I think we've only had one president in my lifetime that would actually use military force to to uh, pr uh, to stop a secession effort, and that's Trump. I don't think any of the other presidents in my lifetime would have ever used military force to stop a state from seceding. It's just politically and gut-wise, none of them have the guts to do it. None of them have what it takes to do it, both politically and um, the intestinal fortitude necessary. In, in all the other places, you know, where secession has happened, I mean, including the United States in 1776, when the 13 colonies formed states and seceded from England, um, Brexit is an example. Uh, all the, as somebody brought up, all, all the Eastern European countries, you know, from Ukraine all the way down through, all of them seceded from the USSR. Uh, there was no war for any of that. Um, Namibia seceded from South Africa when uh, Nelson Mandela and the ANC took over. That was peaceful. There's no war. There's lots and lots of secessions. Um, 
So it's not it's not inevitable. Uh, you have to argue, you know, I, I like the national divorce. A lot of people throw that around because secession has this bad word. So when you equate it to that, you're saying that, you know, if a woman leaves a man, then the man has the right to go shoot her if she doesn't come back. That's that's the argument. Um, to do me, you have the, go ahead. Sorry. I, the, the, the argument, uh, my final thing, I'll just say, like, it relies on the force makes right. It's like force answers moral question you know the the might make right thing people say oh the civil war answered this question like that's bullshit that's saying that like if you get in a fight the winner of the fight just settled a moral question that's not true but alex yeah i was gonna say that i to me if a union does not accept certain members trying to leave that union they're not really a union anymore because the whole point of a union is to be united by choice. So if you're no longer united by choice, but by force, then it's a mockery of anything that could possibly be a union at that point. It loses all legitimacy. And at that point, I, I don't care if there's a war, if people fight, because isn't self-determined governance one of the things worth fighting for? Isn't that what America fought for in the first place when they when the country was founded? Like, I don't to me, a lot of people say, oh, it's un-American. I'm like, I don't think you could get more American <laughs> at that point. So to me, a lot of this comes down to, like, do you value your safety at more than you value your self-determined governance? And I I don't value my safety above that. I don't. I don't value other people's safety, other people's self-determined governance over my own safety either. Like, I just, I, I feel like it's a higher level of importance. Yeah. You might also find that when there's a sort of strong cultural difference, um, it might not necessarily be opposed by um, a, a, another, the, the blue states, for example. So if you think if Texas did leave the union, um, then that would make the rest of the union, on average, more blue because Texas is a red state. Um, so I, I could imagine uh, one of the people I know in California saying, sure, go ahead. You know, you know, well, yes. Uh, and, and then the experiment starts. Yeah, Kerry, you, 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 I bet you know a few too. Um, yeah. They'd be happy with them. And, and in fact, right now, they seem to really be all the propaganda they're putting out is how terrible Texas is, which I'm fully in support of. Please keep telling people that we're awful because I don't want the you leftist. I don't want the people who believe the government owns us to be moving here. And so if it stems the tide of people, they, I don't, I'm starting to think, yeah, they would not have as much of a problem with it because you're right. It'll make the union more blue. And then they get to say, look, see, everything we said about Texas is true. They're awful. They want to go do their own thing. Just let them. What I think would happen, though, one of my fears is that if we, if a state like Texas was able to leave the union and, and to, to do this successfully, I have, I kind of have a, uh, I, know, I think the other states would come with us or would also do the same. But I think a lot of the free states, what I'm talking about is the free states, would be besieged by refugees from the union at some point. Because I think things are going to get really bad with hyperinflation and 
I think people are going to be trying to escape those blue territories um, and overrun the free states. And so one of the first things, if it was successful, one of the first things I would want a free state of Texas to be talking about is, is borders <laughs> and immigration process for people from the union, <laughs> from the U.S. coming into Texas so that we can figure out that process and not be overwhelmed uh, in a similar way. Um, that's that's just a, I guess that's like a pragmatic thing I was thinking of. Mm -hmm. That's I like the thing he talked about though. He didn't, I mean, he talked kind of a little bit about borders and immigration flow, but he didn't talk about the idea of basically refugees and he didn't talk about the idea of other states coming with us and not necessarily like Florida breaking off on its own, but potentially Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, all potentially, probably also Arkansas and Oklahoma, um, all potentially, maybe Tennessee, I don't know, yeah. making that move. And that might change the potential response of the federal government's um, potential level of their response too if it was you know not one state but was 11 or 12 or 13 states i don't know he didn't talk about that at all because it wasn't the focus of his book but yeah i think the that book expanded it right keith no i was gonna say the book to me just sounded like texas on its own i do agree that if texas were to leave i think other states are going to do the same thing. And that's what sort of scares me a little bit because I, I don't want to see the great country the U.S. is and in, in the way it is. Uh, I always think that we're stronger together than separate. And if we're on our own as individual little countries, I think the fear, the, the more danger is not, not coming from within, it might coming from outside, right? Where you have outside threats from other countries that are communists or have a different style of government where they're going to enforce that all over the world. Now, it's, uh, it's not an easy subject uh, to a uh, problem to resolve, obviously. But and the other thing is there is problems with the way that the system works in the federal government. Obviously, there's too much corruption. There's too much too much uh, conflicts of interest. Right. And I think that exists in any government. Even if you had your own little your own government as a state, like it's still sort of the same system in a sense, and that problem has to be solved too, right? You can't have people that are in the Congress or the the president or I mean, there's so much conflict of interest that happens in government that, and I don't know how to solve that, but that's one of the problems that leads us to where we're going on right now, or at least that's what I see. So do you see right. a bigger threat from the outside to the integrity of the United States or from the inside? Well, I don't think that you people in the U.S., like citizens like us, would, would be accepting any state attacking or other countries attacking another state because I don't think people would go for that. Maybe there would be some crazy people in power that might decide to do that. But I don't think the majority of people would want to. Because I think the vast majority of people are probably thinking like us, and we 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 have a brotherhood. We 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 care for our our our, our citizens. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of divisiveness over the last year or two, or not well, not last year. I mean, it's longer than that. But I think overall, most people have the same values in a general sense, in terms of ultimately what they want. Right? I think most people want to be free, and they want self determination. We're losing that. That's one of the reasons 
that this this text book was written right but i do fear like outside forces from outside countries that could take advantage of a situation like this right because i mean it's different to say well you know brexit you know obviously the uk it does not have the stat the the, the level of, of leadership in the world as the us has the ussr you know they had power back then when before it broke up what is where is it now now obviously this is a completely different situation but if we were to break up i think we would they would the the the, the obviously the leadership role the us has is probably going to end and maybe it's ending anyways but i think do you not think his chapter on the national debt was sort of talking about how it's ending anyways so I, that kind of helped me get to that place yeah. of is this can this be reformed or does it need to be abandoned and i don't think we can reform i no longer think we can reform the excesses of where we like mm. when he talks about how the federal government is now so large he says if it was its own standalone country it would be ranked 75th in the world by population if it was a state in the union it would be ranked fifth among the other states and then that whole paragraph uh, on page 94, where he talks about um, all the federal programs and duplicate programs, 342 separate economic development programs, 130 programs serving at-risk youth, 90 early childhood development programs, 75 programs funding international education, et cetera, on and on and on, and how it never seems to make itself smaller. It just keeps growing. So I think maybe I, I'm... I hear a lot of, uh, in your voice, that's, I think I was there until recently. And, and recently I've started to think, but what if it can't be reformed and we're going to hit this crash anyway? So uh, what do we have to lose? Because because the debtors are going to come calling. <laughs> we, we've racked up all this, you know, over 20 trillion in, in national debt. And now they're to the point of absurdity where they're talking about what if we just mint a $20 trillion coin? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Does anyone have any thoughts on what Manny's saying? I, I, Get I out think you that, can. I think Texas leaving the United States makes Texas safer from all the countries in the world, not more dangerous. So if, if Texas does leave and doesn't continue the American intervention wars all over, um, why would anybody attack Texas? Like you pick a bad one, say China, China's going to want to sell cell phones and computers and, and towels. Um, they're not going to attack Texas. Um, and then the second part of that, he talked about, uh, agreements between countries for defense. So Texas has a significant military size, like it's bigger than most countries by itself. Um, and it's got plenty of money and fuel and all that. So Texas could put up its own pretty formidable military. And if something did go after Texas, somebody did go after Texas, once trade is established with the United States, uh, the United States has a lot of incentive to, to jump in. Like just pick out one thing that Texas is the biggest energy producer in the United States by a factor of two. I didn't know this till I read the book, but it turns out Florida is second and it's half. So like you want to lose that, like the United States can't allow that to go. United States military would be right in. But I think the main point is that most of most or all, 
it's either most or all of the danger the United States faces militarily from terrorists and other countries is because of the American military involvement. Um, and if Texas didn't do that, that goes away. Why would the terrorists go after Texas if Texas wasn't taking over countries all over the world? Would Texas establish, you know, 150 bases in 150 countries worldwide? Probably not. Probably established none. You know, I, I would rather see the Switzerland model. Can I interject really just as a plug for, I was okay. at the Williamson County Rodeo here in Texas uh, recently, this weekend, and there was a Texas State Guard booth. And I started talking to them because I didn't, I had never seen, I just seen the National Guard. I started talking to them because I heard from some uh, friends that they all the Texas Guard are being called up right now. And even some of the inactive guard, which is, I don't know what they're being called up for. But uh, anyway, I talked to these guys and they said, have you ever thought about joining? And I said, no, I aged out, you know, because the National Guard, I think if I age out for uh, the Army's like 41 or something. And they said, no, for Texas Guard, it's 67. You can still join up until 67. I had no idea. Anyway, just a plug for the guard. I'm learning more about them now. I'm like, I don't want to read about what you guys are doing. I'm sorry. I got us off. But I thought it was interesting. I'm reading about this and the Texas Guard and wouldn't be able to defend ourselves. And then I came across a guard booth. It's kind of cool. Okay. I, I want to point out two things. Uh, one is that a lot of Texas is rural. And uh, as far as an invasion, you'd have to go neighborhood by neighborhood and um, there's a there's a reason houses, you know, around here, cars get stolen, houses do not get broken into. You just don't ever hear about a house being broken into. And there's a reason for it. There's a shotgun behind every door. Pretty much. Um, and it's it's got a reputation, but it's a really well-deserved and earned reputation. Um, I just don't see how an, a foot invasion would ever be successful. They would have to get across the landscape. The um, the other thing, it you know what? I've lost my train of thought, so I'm going to stop. Derailed. So yeah, I so I want to introduce something else um, into the conversation, if I might. The um, something I. I was hoping to see acknowledgement of in um, in Miller's book was the actual nature of um, the the type of political coup that would be necessary in order to actually make this work. And because ultimately, I, it, you can have all the one you know the 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 reasons and the legal precedent and all those other things, and he sets that case up quite nicely. But um, if you see how these um, changes take place in history and it doesn't matter which country or which era you look at there's a leader and usually a plan and usually a certain amount of subterfuge involved in, in actually executing one of these so for brexit there was nigel farage and it's hard to see how brexit would happen without that single individual uh, doing what he did, creating the UK party, um, you know, ha having been an MEP, a member of the European Parliament in Brussels, for, 
for a long time. But you could equally say the same thing about how the Russian Revolution wouldn't have happened without Lenin, if you read the history about what he managed to do. So you need more than just the justification and the right to do something, especially when you've had uh, a status quo where Texas has been, you know, as part of this uh, uh, entity called the United States for now we're counting into centuries. Um, you, you need something else other than, you know, justification of laws in order to make it happen. You actually need, need to execute it in a more wily and practical and uh, uh, political way. And he didn't really talk about that at all. Yeah, I agree. I think he got he kind of close where, you know, he was talking about some of the things that he thought was the reason why this hasn't become a reality yet. One of those being money and people willing to actually. And then he sort of said, it's not that people who support Texas don't have money. It's that they they don't donate. They don't, don't, they're not donors. And then he talked about, you know, being political novices and, and amateurs is what he called us. Uh, and I think some of this is what, what, what I hear you saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think that I, I think the reason why we, this hasn't become a reality yet is, is twofold. One, because it hasn't been enough time. You know, he gives the timeline for Brexit and the timeline for, uh, was it Catalina in Spain? So am I getting that right? And, and about how many decades, yeah. yes, how many decades this took. And, and so he said the Texas movement really was born in 1996. It's in its infancy. And so it might take a while. So one thing I was hearing from that is patience. But the other thing I think is that is, is that people, even though in a poll, they might say, yeah, I support Texas independence. What he talked about atomization and fear and everything, nobody wants to say that out loud. And nobody wants to say that. Um, it, I think up until re very recently, up until everything we've seen in the past year and a half, it was sort of viewed as this fantasy thing. I've always thought of it as something ridiculous until recently. And so people weren't even having real conversations about it. And people who might support a sovereign state, um, that severs ties with the union, that pulls withdrawals from the union, didn't know where to find each other, didn't know how to support one another. And I think we're at the very beginning stages of it being something that people, because now think about how many times we've all heard the phrase national divorce in the past year, not just on unsafe space. I hear lots of commentators talking about it now. Sarah Silverman's talking about it now, you know? So culturally, I think it's becoming in that collective uh, unconscious where people are starting to all talk about or think about the same thing. It's becoming more of a an acceptable subject to broach, whether you support it or oppose it. At least it's it's coming out of that place of something ridiculous that shouldn't be entertained. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, and I mean, I think it was very interesting within the last week or so. Uh, Ted Cruz and Michael Knowles were speaking live at Texas A and M doing a live episode of The Verdict, and they took audience questions. And one of the questions Ted Cruz got was. What do you think about Texas potentially seceding? I mean, and he talked about in this book that that's gotten more and more common to be a question that's asked of the political class. Um, but I did think it was interesting. His response was, I don't think it's time yet. I think Texas has a responsibility to the rest of the union. And right now we're kind of keeping them from going over the cliff. But he said, if at some point it becomes hopeless, and he used the term hopeless, and the examples he used were 
the Democrats getting rid of the filibuster, packing the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court. Um, potentially adding D.C. as a state, federalizing elections. He said if it, at some point it becomes hopeless, we take NASA and the military and the oil and go. And it's interesting that those aren't things that obviously were discussed in this book because that it predates those. But those are all things the Democrats have actually talked about doing in the federal government. I thought it was interesting. I've noticed that the chat is talking a lot about if Texas succeeds protecting yourself from an, a physical invasion. And I don't really think a physical invasion is likely. I actually think that more, and this is actually what's already, either from the US or from China or from Russia, pick your big super state enemy. Um, I don't think it's likely because it seems to me that those three entities have taken on new tactics for taking over a smaller state or a state that they don't like. And that is like undercutting them in financial ways uh, or disrupting or owning their infrastructure. So and, and I- And cyber attacks. I mean, which- Yes, and you know, like uh, the other one I was, I was thinking of was the data, like essentially keep uh, violating uh, data privacy. So those three things I think are already being used against the American people by the federal government by China, by, you know, Russia. So I don't really see that we're not already in it. And I think that's what's going to there. If, if Texas votes to secede and they actually leave, I don't see force as being the actual worry. I, I see those three moves being what's going is, is what's going to happen is what's going to be used in greater force against them now, if that makes sense. One other thing I, I, I was going to mention before about force is, as far as coming from the United States, um, I think, and I worked, I was never in the military, but I worked as a designer for military communications. Like, I've known a lot of military people. Very few people would be willing to go fight Texas. You'd see people, like, quitting right and left. And there's a huge number of Texans in the U.S. military. So Daniel brought up the, the idea that like if Texas secedes, if any of them participate in anything against Texas, that's treason. That's actually what treason is. Leaving, leaving the union is not treason. Um, so I think it's a hard sell for the United See, States to fight. This is, a, this is a mind thing that it's, it's taking like uh, it's a mind flip because so many of us, as has been pointed out in this discussion, didn't take civics and have a limited understanding of history at least and i went to two great schools and i i've learned so much about history and the founding of the country in the past year compared to what i've known for most of my adult life i felt i'm so ignorant and i'm still ignorant and so learning some of the stuff about you know why is it that we've always thought of i've always thought of the united states as the nation as a nation and this book kind of set me straight on that of like no, that's not the way the founders envisioned it. In fact, they very specifically said, you know, these are the sovereign states. That's why they're called states. It's not the United States. It's these, these are individual sovereign states and they've come together under a federal government, not a national government. But with all these different insertions into the way that we think about ourselves as a country and as a, as a union of states, 
um, it, it's definitely it's definitely taken reading something like this to sort of challenge all these preconceived notions I held that I didn't even know I held. The pledge being a great one, I, one nation, indivisible. That's that's uh, socialist nonsense. I stopped saying that a while ago, <laughs> a couple years ago, um, because everything I in the pledge of allegiance is wrong. It. Yeah, yeah, but I'm. <laughs> I go to like some meetings locally, freedom defenders and stuff, and they always start with the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, and I thought about it, you know, and so probably for 10 years, I haven't been that saying like, I started with not saying like the indivisible line and I'm an atheist, so I don't say the under God line. Um, and I've slowly taken more and more statements out till I finally, about a year ago, I just stopped saying any of it because I think it's all wrong, except for maybe Republic. That's like the only word in it that's wrong. I want to write an article and break that apart. Yeah, I used to say just, you know, Republic, I would just say that. And so, yeah, I'm at the point where the next time I told my girlfriend, I'm not even going to take my hat off when they say, gentlemen, remove your hats. <laughs> like, that's bullshit. I'm not doing that. Um, it's, it's not, it was, as Daniel pointed out, it was written by a socialist, you know, not that long ago. Um, the, the, the whole concept of indivisible, if you, if anybody had been expressing that seriously at the time that the constitution was signed, we wouldn't be a country like no state would have ever ratified the, the, the constitution with this kind of idea that a state couldn't leave. Um, one, one other point about how the founders saw it, like not too many people know about it, but when, when they seceded from England, the Declaration of Independence is 13 separate nations seceding at the same time. Um, they, they use the terms like these United States. You look at the original declaration, the United is lowercase u in the title. Like That's just an English word for doing everything together. They never considered themselves one state. Um, in the declaration, it says they separate themselves from the state of Great Britain. Like they use the word state to refer to Virginia and they use the state to refer to Great Britain. It's the same thing. They didn't use the term nation or country. And when they signed the T Treaty of Paris, you know, at, at the end of the war, it's 13 separate agreements. Um, the King of England agreed with 13 separate nations, you're independent. It wasn't a United States even then. So the founders didn't think that. They didn't believe this. Um, they would be astounded at this conversation, I think. Well, but look how far we've gotten united, right? The U.S. together, all those states that got together. And sorry, I, I I look at it from that perspective. Do it. There's a lot Go of ahead, good. Manny. There's a lot of good that comes from being together. Now, I'm not saying we don't have problems, and I'm not saying that there is not a valid argument for, you know, maybe breaking off, going on your own. But I do think that it's not going to be as easy as it sounds. There's going to be a lot more problems that we don't even envision that will come up. We're going to probably cede power to another world power that will take control and impose itself on the rest of the world. And we won't have the ability of doing it. And unfortunately, I think the U.S. is the leader in the world. I see the U.S. like the big brother of every Latin American country. Like everybody, the, the everybody aspires to be like the U.S. If you ask so many other countries outside, and if that were to go away, 
obviously there's problems. I'm not saying there isn't. And the federal government is too big. That's why we should get back to civics and teaching kids in a yearly age what's the the real story of how things evolved and why things are the way they are and why there should be limited government on a federal level. And, you know, because that's just how it's supposed to work. It's not working that way anymore because it's becoming like a big, huge balloon now where now, you know, there's a lot of a lot of issues with 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 the corruption that we see in government. But anyways, I, I'm going on a tangent again. I think there is a lot of things that have come up that are very good at being together. I think that, that maybe throwing the towel in is maybe not made. Well, I don't I don't think it's the right time anyways. I think there were. Is there a way to fix the problem? Or is it a way for states to get together, government, the governors of the, you know, of all states, and maybe get a way to to sort of, I don't know, maybe there isn't, but to 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 limit the federal government's power, right, and start going back to the way it should be. I mean, can it be turned around? Hopefully, there's a, there's a historical question there that you could you could ask, and maybe people here that know their history, world history better than I do could answer. But are there any precedents of states getting smaller without some kind of separation or secession or revolution or something like that? Just I can't, I can't think of one. It's never happened. One instance. Yeah. Say again. Has it ever happened in any any period of time in any? country or system where a state has voluntarily shrunk itself, like the, the public sector. I, I don't think it's possible. I think the, the, I think that with Lincoln, the federal government became superior over the states with, uh, was it uh, after the Great Depression, was it Roosevelt? I actually, I'm not sure which president it was who started social security and that began a common mindset that people are supposed to be taken care of by the government and um, not a slam on millennials, believe me, but uh, having grown up in the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, uh, it be, you know, the, when did Medicare start? Um, early 60s. Yeah. So people pay into it. I mean, you hear you hear elderly people say, "Well, I paid into it, and uh, you know, I deserve it. I I paid for my medical care in my old age." And the thing is, if you do the dollars, if you figure it out, somebody who's 80 probably paid in at most thirty thousand dollars over over a lifetime of working, but is getting benefits well in excess of a hundred thousand. Um, and multiply that by every uh, elderly person there is. But so now we, my point is now we have this mindset that we're owed and you see it in young people, especially young being 40 and under that they're owed, they're owed a place to live, they're owed food, they're owed, you know, an education, they're owed medical care. And I, and, and at the same time, we have Democrats and Republicans who are corrupt to the core. Their only real goal is to stay in office and reap the benefits and become rich. And it's both parties. It's not just the Dems. It's definitely the REAPs because the REAPs do absolutely nothing to slow or stop the corruption that goes on. They're just quieter about it. 
And it's, what are you calling and I, them soon? The REAPs? REAPs, uh, uh, Republicans. Sorry, I should say Republican. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, and unfortunately, I just don't see us going back to an earlier time where we had less federal control over everything we that we do and say and buy and um you know re recently they were floating this idea of every transaction over six hundred dollars uh should be reported to the irs and then they backed way off it's a plan this is how no, they do it then they backed off. way off and said well no no we're going to stick to the ten thousand for now so they've introduced the idea but it shouldn't even be ten thousand why should the irs be informed or the federal government or the dhs what or um what's the the one after homeland security it's none of their business if i sell a car and i put 10 grand in the bank it's absolutely none of their business but people have come to accept that the federal government um is supposed to keep track of all this so i'll stop ranting um I just don't see us going back, and it's terribly unfortunate, but I just don't see it. The, I the see trend you. that I've seen since I've been paying attention, which is high school in the 70s, is the government's expanding, and it's training people more and more to be dependent on government. Um, you know, we're talking about civics versus social studies. Like, I actually, I was the age where I saw the transition. So when I was in like grammar school, we still had civics. Uh, I remember my, uh, I still have my diploma from uh, eighth grade. It's got a copy of the Declaration of Independence and the, the U.S. Constitution in it. Like that's what they were doing. But when I went to high school, they started social social studies. So I started learning, you know, the government is in charge. And I watched that transition. Um, and when I was in college, it was getting worse. Uh, I graduated high school in 78. Um, when I took, I took American history uh, 101 in college as, as an elective. I was an engineer, but I took it from a, a great professor. Um, the first day, his assignment was, for today, I want you to go home and I want you to forget everything you ever learned about American history because the only point of any of it was to make you love your country and think your government's the greatest. And then come in Wednesday, I'm gonna start at the beginning, I'm gonna tell you what actually happened. That was like shocking. <laughs> at 18, I was like, whoa. But uh, I think he was right. Um, and I really liked him. I talked, I would go after class a few times and talk to him, I got to know him a little bit. Um, oh, and by the way, the guy was Paris Glendening, who eventually became a two-term governor of Maryland. Um, and I still lived in Maryland then. And I remember when he became governor, I was like, I don't even know what party this guy is. Like he taught American history in college and I didn't know what his political views were. Um, I don't think that happens anymore. Talking to my nieces and nephews and people's kids, like you definitely know the political view of your history professor. They make it quite clear. That's the big change in, in how education is run, even in my lifetime. Well, see, I hey, just like, FYI, there's some feedback. So if you're not speaking, just a reminder to mute yourself after you talk. Thank you. Go ahead. I, I want to talk about what Manny said about we got to make sure kids have civics. The problem with that is that the Department of Education is a federal 
agency that oversees the education of the children. So like we're already facing a problem with parents trying to go to school boards and tell them what they really want their kids to be learning and they're being kicked out of the school board meetings and they're not so to me I'm sort of like I don't know that it, that relying on the education system right now is the answer to making sure people have civics again in their lives because it's not working right now and and the department of education already is the federal government they already have a reason to push the idea that you need to rely on us you know with the children so i i don't know that that's an answer and it's not like i said i i grew up in a time where social studies was standardized but you know and it wasn't in, i was in high school i did take government and that was when i learned that the word state meant what we consider nation as americans and that was kind of a wake-up call for me that one thing and i always remembered it and then that same year i think it was uh this uh scotus found that a state couldn't use capital pu capital punishment for uh, child molestation. That was what, that was the case, that the big case when I was in high school. And my father said, that's bullshit, that's a state's right. They have no standing to make that judgment. And those two pieces of information alone were what woke me up to the idea that the federal government is overreaching constantly. The problem is, is that I don't know that a lot of people pay attention to these things. And, or eat, like a lot of people are just overworked. They're just tired. They just want to enjoy their lives, you know, and they have kids and they care about their kids, but they don't have the time necessarily to go to the school board, even if they wanted to. And I think that's part of the reason why people who uh, are not overworked or not like worn down by all this do need to do things like this book club, right? Uh, become part of movements like Texit. And one of the reasons why I support a movement like Texas or any state who wants the people that want to vote to secede, they should have that right to vote, is because uh, I recently heard of a woman who was being overworked at her job. Uh, she was working 70 hours a week and she said, I'm going to quit. It was not a bargaining chip. She said she was going to leave and they changed their ways. I think the only thing that could possibly wake up the federal government to to minimizing is states saying through vote, we're gonna leave. That's the only thing I think that will be the slap in the face that they need. And I don't mean that as a, we're saying it, we're not gonna do it. No, saying it and meaning it, that we're gonna leave. I think that's the only thing that's gonna wake them up, especially if it's Texas, because Texas is where they get so much of their money. The, that's one of my hopes from this is that uh, Texas and if other states joined in, it could put enough pressure on the U.S. government to say, okay, we'll, we'll at least entertain, <laughs> you know, some changes. But the way things have been going, I just, it seems like they own all the institutions. They would just vilify everyone. Like, I just don't see it. They, they haven't shown any inclination to pull back um although the the thing mentioned recently with the uh declaration of six hundred dollar income so i guess they pulled back but but yeah they just planted the seeds so they'll, they'll bring it back out but um sorry sorry to chime in but i 
I agree with that. I'm hoping that this could cause some change to happen and still keep the unit intact. Well, I don't think the, the $600 reporting IRS, they didn't really pull back on that. <clears throat> they pulled back to $10,000 per year. So now they're saying anybody that has $10,000 transaction annually. Well, what's that? That's a difference without a distinction. It's it's they planted the seed, but but I wanted to say that for years, for decades now, ever since I don't remember the court name court case. It might have been Marbury versus Madison, but it was the very first crucial Supreme Court decision on the commerce, the interstate commerce clause. Mm -hmm. Ever since that decision, slowly but surely. Congress has Congress and the president have been adding laws and adding agencies. The U.S. Department of Education is is probably the prime example of a, a federal agency that has no basis in the Constitution. In fact, the Constitution prohibits exactly that kind of an agency. But they've relied on the Interstate Commerce Commission clause to say that, yeah, the National Labor Relations Board, the National Labor Relations Act, the Department of Education, the Environmental Protection Act, the Department of Environmental Protection, those are all interstate commerce issues, so the federal government has a ticket to play. And I think it's straight up BS. I don't see that changing until it reaches critical mass. And I don't know if we're there yet, but but every every week it seems to me we get a lot closer to critical mass and at some point in time the states are going to have to stand up and say no that's not what the constitution says but until the states do that and maybe texas is the way to make that statement maybe that's the only way to make that statement um but trying to unwind all this stuff that's happened over the last probably six or seven decades Unwinding it, I think, is uh, is an impossible task, and I wouldn't ever look to that as being uh, reality. I think we have to look elsewhere for the solution, elsewhere being something like Texas, where you start a new nation, a new state, a new nation. So anyway, that's my take on interstate commerce. It's been well overused. The other thing that happens is they take our money in the way of income taxes and federal excise taxes and all these other taxes they take our money from austin texas and they send it to washington dc and then they give it back to us with strings attached if you want money to build your highway you have to adopt these certain rules so they're not so they're not violating the Constitution and taking over a state's right. They're simply coercing you. If you want your money back, you've got to follow their rules. So that's the other, that's the other leg of the, of the three-legged stool is, is the coercion. If you want your money back to buy a new fire engine for your fire district, you have to follow these certain rules. And one of those rules is now, or will be shortly, you got to get a, you got to get a vaccination, or you don't get grant money. You got to get a vaccination, or you don't get a grant to buy that fire engine. You don't get a grant to help build that overpass. You don't get a grant to help repair that bridge unless unless your state adopts a vaccination mandatory vaccination plan. So, 
enough ranting. Yeah, for anybody who, this was in uh, the chapter called Causes Which Impel Them. Um, and I, these numbers just shocked me. For anybody who's just watching and hasn't read this book yet, it says, on average, Texas, $265 billion per year in taxes to the federal government. Federal government expenditures in Texas, at best, account for only $162 billion. This is a substantial overpayment of $103 billion annually that we're overpaying. We're one of the states that pay a lot more than we get back. And then as Larry's saying, the money that we get back has strings attached. So the $162 billion that we get back says it is, in fact, money sent to the state for the implementation and administration of federal and federally authorized programs. <laughs> it's, they're such extortionists. I'm sorry, just reading this, I'm, I was thinking, wait, what? this alone, I think if most people knew, would help open their minds a little bit towards the idea of reclaiming sovereignty for the state. But yeah, just wanted to- That was actually- It's hard to even- a complete surprise to me because I always keep hearing this narrative that red states are always taking more money than blue states, and the guy no, and I don't, I don't know how true that is. And um, but yeah, that's always kind of a bragging point from California. Is like, oh, we we subsidize the red states, and like, well, you really don't have to do that. Um, they can go off and do that. I don't know about probably do like, need, Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about states like Alabama or something, for example, maybe, but. Uh, not Texas. And I think this is another great point that people make a lot, which is Texans don't consider themselves Southerners, which when I moved here, I thought was so interesting. They, Because I'm a Southerner. I'm from South Carolina, but now I'm a Texan. And that's different. <laughs> They're like, don't lump us in with everyone else. We're our own thing. I did think the author did a really good job nailing the uh, attitude that Texans have about being Texan. Um, it was accurate. I think people in other states that have never traveled here or stayed extensively don't know, but that is how it is here. Yeah, Texan is a thing, right? If somebody say, where are you, where are you from? You could be in Europe. People say Texas. Um, they don't say America. You can be a Texan. I live in Florida. Floridian is a thing. You could say you're in Florida. But I grew up and lived most of my life in New Jersey. Like nobody says they're a New Jerseyan. Like I never heard anybody say that in my life. With pride, there isn't any word for that because nobody's that all that proud to be from there. I guess. Snooky. I'm glad I left. <laughs> New Jersey's not going to secede. The Jersey Shore. That's your. This. They're proud of it. Jersey okay. Shore. I, I well, no, it's it's not. I don't mean to harp on people there or some of the stuff. And I lived in South Jersey. I didn't live in North Jersey. I lived in a part of New Jersey where people would say, "Oh, you, you're from New Jersey." People would say. No way, man. I'm from South Jersey. I ain't from New Jersey. I used to have a shirt that said South Jersey, the 51st state. That was a popular shirt when I was in high school. Um, but even so, like, I just, you know, my point was like, there are some states that have a real identity and Texas is one of them. And Florida's one too, where I live now. Um, New Jersey isn't. New Jersey is, would be the last one. Like they would be hanging on to the bitter end with the federal government nanny state. Well, so oh, I was saying about, the, about education, just quickly, I, um, it, you know, people in the chat here, the private chat, if you guys want to speak up, I think Zayo and, and, and Daniel and the others are talking about the education system and, and, you know, allowing the federal government to indoctrinate generations of children. Um, 
the what I've learned about Texas is that most school children in Texas used to get, I, th I think it was at seventh grade or something. Anybody who grew up here, let me know. But they would get an extensive Texas history. Is this right? Yeah, all of Josie? seventh grade. All of seventh all grade. All of seventh grade was Texas history. And, and from what I've heard from people who grew up here, like my husband, it was like that you knew more Texas history than you did federal, you, than you US did U.S. History. history. Right. And what's happened in the in the past 10 years is they've been slowly just dismantling that completely and taking it apart. So people and I think that's intentional so that people kids aren't getting that state pride and that identity as a Texan in the way that they used to. And if you look at his stats in this book, he talks about um, one of the, one of the round, I forget where this part's at. Do you guys remember the part where he says uh, interviewing people about how do they identify? And it was, uh, I think over 50% of Latino kids in the state of Texas, they identify as a Texan first and like American second. But they, that doesn't benefit the federal government <laughs> for people to be like, you know, Texas history. And I know I identify as a Texan. And so I think that's why that's been under assault. Sorry. I know I talked over someone who, who was trying to talk. I think it was me. I So like I grew up in Arizona. I wouldn't say most Arizonans have a, although we do have a name for ourselves, have a um, like cohesive culture idea. And I think the reason why is because, so when I was a kid, all the kids were from born and raised in Arizona everyone in the generation above that came from somewhere else they came from chicago they came from california like everyone moved here and i think air conditioning was a big part of that <laughs> but then like now we over when before the 2008 crash arizona had a huge influx of people from california um because of uh realty was our biggest industry here you could just buy land like crazy because it was just not developed so it was cheap compared to living in california and that's one of the reasons why i say maricopa turned blue but um so i don't really think most arizonans i i hardly know any born and raised arizonans besides myself so to me i don't think we have that i cultural identity and honestly i want it at this point i don't i i feel like it's lacking and I kind of hate the fact that modernity allowed us to move around quite so much within the U.S. so that everyone is like, I'm just a U.S. citizen. I don't consider myself like from this state. Like, I, I feel like that's kind of a loss. Uh, and I think it affected how people, not just the whole no more civics, no more telling people that we're uh, individual sovereign states. I think that also greatly affected the uh, U.S. citizen culture that we are all one uh, group, and it always bothered me that they ca they compared all of the U.S. to like single European countries and stuff like that because I felt like that was like the silliest thing you could do because we're so big, we have so many subcultures, and it's I, I kept saying compare individual states to individual countries in in Europe. If you're going to do that just because the data would match better. And now I understand that from the perspective of comparing states to states, that would also still match better. <laughs> so I, I kind of feel like we we lost a lot when uh, not just because of the loss of civics, but also because of the the 
the ability to move across the country. Like, you know, it used to be generationally you would stay in the same state. And I don't think that's much of a thing uh, anymore. People move for their jobs. I do think Texas is a little special, though, because we tend to absorb people. <laughs> we tend to absorb like-minded people who move here. So there, are, I know lots and lots of people who are consider themselves, you know, gung-ho Texans, one of whom is leading this chat, um, that are not native to Texas. I'm not native to Texas. I moved here when I was almost 11 from Georgia. So um, I, it's a little bit different there, too, um, but I'm sure it's, you know, not true in every single state. You know all the do you guys know any first generation immigrants to the US, legal immigrants who've gone through the whole process and have you ever talked to one of them I have where you realize they know so much more about our founding and documents and history and the way that government is supposed to function than I do because they've had to study to pass you know, to pass the test and get their citizenship. Um, I'm already thinking about what we need to do for Texas citizenship. Like we need to do classes on two stepping and barbecue and like we should have to talk about <laughs> Uh, out, you know, Texas history, obviously, as well, but cultural stuff. And you know, it's really like you can't just come in <laughs> like you need to so study I just, like I did. I was, I was, my husband, it's a good thing my husband was born here because he can't do stuff for anything. <laughs> so as, as a first generation immigrant myself, I, I wouldn't oversell the uh, detail of the uh, civics aspect of the immigration test. Um, oh, really? No, 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 the language skills. I, all I had to do to prove that I was literate in English was write my name is Daniel on a piece of paper. So that was it. Really? Does yeah. that change depending on where you're immigrating from, or because I, 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 I could only tell you what okay. my experience was, but that, okay. that's what it was in 2008, 2007. Yeah, 2008. Um, I think that. Uh, if we're gonna get out of this mess, it will have to come out from the ground up where people are awakened to see what is happening. Education in terms of not maybe what you learn in school, but parents. And it's that's the nice thing about at least what you're seeing happening in some places like in Virginia and other places where parents are taking more control and are realizing what is happening in schools. And, you know, the family is the core of everything. And what you're taught by your parents is what actually forms you as you grow up. And we need to have more of that happening because if you have a good, uh, if you have educated your kids and you brought them up the right way, they are, they're gonna turn out to be good citizens, right? When, when that doesn't happen, then you have a breakdown in the family or something like that. That's where you start seeing more problems. Um, the media, I don't know how you resolve that problem, but there's, there's such a big problem of, of compounding everything that we deal with. I mean, I'm like Keith, I'm in Florida and, uh, you know, I talk to colleagues on the phone that are maybe in the Northeast and they're like, Oh yeah, Florida, they're terrible. You're killing people over there. The governor is horrible. I'm like, have you been to Florida? I think people here love their governor. I mean, we are free compared to most, almost everywhere else in the U S and, um, you know, obviously we've gone through a very bad situation with COVID and everything, but, all in all, I think it's been very, we've, we've done really well here, but that's not what you hear in the news, right? Everybody's like, oh yeah, Florida's terrible. Don't go there, you know. How do you get past that problem? 
I don't see how you can do it from the top up. You have to go from the ground. You have to inform. You have to educate your kids, the young, your cousins, your nephews, your nieces, everybody to be aware that you cannot believe what you see in TV. You can't. We can't. Right. And hopefully over time. And I think that's what's happening. And that's one of the great things about unsafe space. It sort of, you know, has helped open many people's eyes. And then we can spread the word and get more people to, to realize that, you know, that we're losing our liberties, that you have a government that's telling you what you have to do and you're getting stuck. The way that U.S. was founded is being lost, right? And hopefully that can lead to a change. You know, it's not going to be easy for sure. But, I mean, I think that together we can, we can hopefully get there. Manny, to your optimism um, about the union, the state of the union, something Zeta said about if we did ever, if a state ever did talk about leaving, maybe it would, maybe it would be a wake up call. Um, and I don't know if that would happen or not. But if you think about a divorce, sometimes it takes one person saying, I want a divorce. This isn't working for the couple to get into marriage counseling and figure things out. I think that's rare once you get to that point of one party wanting to leave. But um, but maybe maybe that's maybe a, I still think we we need to wrestle with the question of leaving, though. I think we need to have this conversation about leaving seriously because either it gets us towards leaving or it change, it, it affects people and, and the philosophically and the way they think about the union and the way they think about liberty and American principles. And, and maybe it provokes a change because, oh, they're serious, like they're leaving. <laughs> Daniel, I knew you would say something. Yeah, I, I, for me, I'd like also a framing which was actively positive and not just unnegative for this. Uh, there was something that was uh, said by one of us before, sorry, I don't know all your names, but uh, um, it, it's easy to get stuck in a historical framing, saying, you know, we're going back to you know, what it was 150 years ago. It's not that world anymore. It's a, it's a different world now with different opportunities. Um, the thing that really, you know, what, what could get me excited, why I am excited about this idea is about what Texas could be. I already think that, you know, given, I mean, Texas is growing so much faster than California. California is the largest of the economies and the largest population is about 40 million to Texas is 30 million. And it's got a, a larger GDP and it's got the, those industries. But I think Texas is going to overtake California within 10 years, uh, probably both in population because it is growing and California shrinking, but also just because of the dynamism of industry and business and, and the cultural dynamism and stuff like that. Um, so I, the thing that really I, I would like to see talked about more is like what Texas could be. I mean, it could, it could accelerate even faster and be even greater, I think, as an independent country rather than, and I think, I, I, I feel it is held back under its current, uh, its current relationship and its largest system, which is Colorado. Um, and uh, free Texas could be ever so more so, more dynamic, you know, in, in the way that Singapore, let's say, is just went, went from being um, a tiny nothing country with no industry to a world world leader in just a generation. I think that, that those opportunities are possible. Yeah. 
I think the, the threat of a state like Texas leaving would help. Um, that may be something that can rein in the federal government. Uh, you know, I understand your goal, Manny, but I, I don't see it happen. And the government's just been growing and growing and growing and taking over more and more power. And the states just aren't doing anything about it. So uh, voting, trying to fix D.C., putting better people in D.C., that doesn't work. I've been watching for 50 years. That don't work. Um, maybe nullification, like states really standing up and saying, like, fax mandates. You know, states just declaring that, nope, that is uh, not legal within the state of Florida. And um, any federal agent who attempts to force anything to do with the vax mandate, we're going to arrest and put in jail and prosecute under state law. Like states need to do like that as a minimum. Um, leaving the union is a better threat. And if one state leaves, I think it would be a wake up call. I don't see any any other way to wake up D.C. than, than something really harsh like that. You got to like Kerry said, threatening divorce does sometimes wake the spouse up and make them start flying right like realizing oh this might end um <laughs> so i think it takes up seriously and i think it would be a snowball effect um if texas leaves uh i think i have a couple choices move to texas or convince florida to go along there's a lot mm. of people in mississippi alabama louisiana that are pissed at the federal government um I'd like to drive to the next, let's say, space retreat without having to use my passport to enter the United States and then enter Texas. Um, you know, I think a group of states might go if that's that's a possibility. Now, one other thing I want to mention before I turn the mic over, um, Kerry's question about what happens with immigration. Um, some of you met her. I live with somebody who came here at 34 from another country. Uh, she left because of a country was going downhill because of the culture and the government, those two factors. That's why she left. Um, and her process of coming in here taught her a lot of details. Like she can rattle off names of things. Uh, she certainly knows who Lincoln was and that he was the greatest president ever. Um, but they kind of teach you that the federal government is like, they, they taught her the one state idea. She had, when I met her, she had no idea about the 50 states thing. She really thinks of it as, as all one state. That's what they taught her. Um, and she had to do things like promise to join the military um, if she was called up. And I, I read through the things that she had to do to get American citizenship. I'm like, you want a degree with this? She goes, well, I didn't want to go back to South Africa, which was my other choice. Um, and, and she watches the news and she says, yep, this is exactly what was going on in, in uh, Pretoria in the 80s when she was in high school. They were tearing down the statues and marching and throwing, busting into businesses. And like she says, it's happening here. She just wants to leave. She thinks it's hopeless. We should just leave. I'm trying to convince maybe, her that Texas seceding is a better solution than. Maybe you, we country. should leave, but all together, like in the form of a state. Yeah, she's she understands that because there was uh, a and another example I think I might have mentioned earlier, but when the ANC took over South Africa, Namibia was a, a state. It was a pretty large, fairly prosperous, good economy state of South Africa um, called West South Africa. It was a state, and they just like we're out of here. They seceded, and you know the ANC and Mandela. There was so much turmoil going on that they didn't try to attack and. 
that's what Namibia is now. So there's another example of secession. So she knows all about secession because a state did it when she was in college in the country she lived in and, and turned out fine. I know. I also know somebody from Namibia that lives here now. Um, it's a much better country than South Africa is today. Yeah, so I, I think the civics lesson they taught, they're teaching now is really way off from what they should be teaching for an immigrant getting citizenship. There's, an, there's another path, I think, to, to getting independence instead of from inside Texas. I think we could sell um, independence to freedom-loving folk around the country. We could just move here and uh, start that. It would just be especially good, I think, you know, if you could get the, the um, you know, innovators and entrepreneurs and artists and creators um, who believe in like uh, personal freedoms uh, to come explicitly to join or help lead a movement of independence. Um, it's easy enough to move move to a different state. There's nothing stopping people. What There'll be a lot of people that, trying to break us. Yeah, it's already happening though. Um, one of the things I think we should do is I noticed early in this book, he said when Donald Trump was asked about Texas, uh, Trump's Trump said uh, that'll never happen because they love me too much. So I want to make ads that say. Prove that you hate Trump. Support Texas. <laughs> do you think? Like, because they, they, you know, they, the left want to, they want to do everything the opposite of what he does. Here it is. Texas will never do that because Texas loves me. So for the lefties who might be disinclined to support Texas, look, prove Trump wrong. <laughs> I don't mean ad just geared towards that demographic, but um, what, what do you guys think that we're missing though what is it that we need i know daniel in the uh chat over on the side was talking about leadership i think we need leaders yes i think we need leaders who are confident what what else does anybody want to talk about this you mean for the Texas to be actually be successful if this were to happen yes what do we need to get that 10 percent of critical mass of like really committed people mm. money uh, but another trillion, another 20 trillion national debt. That won't make any difference. Five years from now? <laughs> three years from now? If the numbers now don't scare people, then it's hard to. I mean, we, we did winter this sound, sounded just surreal and crazy and impossible just 10 years ago. Um, so, no, I think it's it's a leader with a, with a plan, with, with some wild and some guile. And, and energy. Well, um, one possibility is Daniel Miller just announced he's running for office. I don't know if anybody mm -hmm. saw that. He, he's uh, he's running for uh, like like a lieutenant governor. You need a, I don't know. Need a Trump? Need a Trump? You, you need a real leader, somebody who is a real a leader, real leader yes. somebody who, who is like a champion, and somebody who Back is not Right. The hard part of the whole thing is, and this was something that, uh, very smart man told me a long time ago uh, 
uh, he he said, you know, the problem with with government and with politics is that anytime you have a, a person with a good intention coming in trying to do good, they're not able to because they're, you know, they're basically it's made impossible by by everybody else who's corrupt. They, they make it impossible for that person to do what they're trying to do because there's so much corruption in power in government that if you come in trying to do something good with good intentions, with good ideals, they, it, it, you, the reaction you get is so big against you. It makes it really hard. I mean, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but that's unfortunately what happens. But if we were able to, to have something where somebody was a real leader or where, you know, maybe on a small scale, when you have a state like Texas or an individual state, it's easier to do than when you're dealing with a country that's as big as the U.S. is. But somebody who comes in and people are they they are aware of what that person is bringing and they support him and they don't believe all the BS they hear in the news or they hear out there. And they allow that person to implement the agenda that that will, you know, lead to the to the success. Um, that's that's what that you need. Somebody who is who believes in liberty as well. And, you know, there's so many. Pro I mean, <laughs> I was going to get on the tangent. I'm not going to. Go ahead. <clears throat> well, in the book, Daniel Miller... Go ahead, Alex. I was going to say, in the book, he brings up the fact that someone, one of the legislators who wanted to support Texas said, if I bring that bill to the, to the floor, they'll mount a candidate, you know, a counter candidate for my position and I'll lose my position. Like, they... And that's why I said money, is that, like, to get people into the legislature, you need money, you need donations to back. And that doesn't necessarily mean like even just a people who are rich, like billionaires supporting them, but like a bunch of people even giving money would would be helpful. But like you do need money to keep politi the politicians you actually want to support in your legislator. I, I think it's really awful that that, that that happens to be true, but it, it it's a reality that we have to deal with. So if we if you don't want someone if you want someone who's going to put the bill forward, you need to make sure that you have the money to back them up. Problem with money wanna, is a problem. Yeah, I just want to interject from the chat. This is not a super chat, but I have to read it. Greg the baritone says Maybe Texans need to form a Muslim extremist group and then Biden will fully arm them and negotiate with them as a sovereign government. I'm just kidding. Sorry, I thought that was funny. <laughs> a little dark humor from the chat. Uh, <laughs> hi, guys. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. I think you're right. I think money, I think um, we need to stop focusing on it's 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 interesting that I'm, for me that I'm reading this now after I've shifted so much away from national like politics anyway I don't really care people are asking me about the midterms and stuff I don't care but I do care about local politics and I and this is this is sort of reinforcing for me that um, maybe when I'm selecting who I'm voting for in the state I need to try and pick people who I think are most uh, loyal to Texas and want to fix Texas's problems. And, and less so, I want to root out the people who have these national ambitions. He, you know, he talks about Rick Perry, who was saying, you know, he wanted to eliminate the, the swamp and big government, big federal government. And then he ended up accepting a position, a cabinet position 
at the federal level that he had previously said should be abolished. It's like some of these people just have their sights beyond the state level. And so I want to focus more on leaders who can first. Maybe you can see if we could import Nigel Farage. I mean, he, he was pretty cool because he created this political party, but then he was quite happy to step away. He didn't, he didn't want the actual political party. He wanted to change and was happy. He was happy for someone else to, uh, to take leadership. So, um, you know, somebody brought up Ted Cruz. Like, he's good on some issues, but he is a big yeah. central government guy. Like, I don't see him really being for Texas. He's for the United States. It's, it's, if Texas secedes, maybe he would change, but that's what I see. People no, talk I about Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I, I more thought it was interesting that he was even addressing the situation, but I agree with you. I don't, I don't. Think it's it's that. in Texas. The polls indicate it's politically necessary for him to at, at least pat somebody on the head for saying something about secession. Um, you know that he would support it, but. I think Ted Cruz would be one of those people that if the polls show it's 51%, he'll flip his view tomorrow. Um, people talk about Ron DeSantis. He's kind of got that same problem. He's eyeing up federal office. So some of what he does is after federal office, like he wants to take the next step. And I look at, you know, I make the point that when I see stuff that he's done, like it's a great argument for keeping Ron DeSantis around as a governor. Uh, nothing he's doing is a good argument for sending him to Washington. Like, I'd rather keep him in Florida. And I don't agree with him on everything, but he's been better than most. Grading on a curve, he's one of the best governors, maybe the best. But you got to change the mindset of the, the people not to want to take the next step. I think he mentioned in the book something. I think it was in that. I've been reading other stuff on secession. Um one of the presidents, like Harding or something, he was Speaker of the House and they were trying to get him to run. I don't know if it was him. They were trying to get him to run for president. And he's like, he he didn't want to because he said Speaker of the House is a more important position. Like that was the view at the time. Like they hadn't made a, a king out of the president yet before Lincoln. Uh, now the president's like seen as the ultimate political goal, like they're the king. And that's part of the problem. You got to view like a governor of a state as being a higher office than the president. That's what I think we need to take that view. Originally to someone who presides, it was supposed to be, they, they chose that label as uh, like, they, 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 they didn't call them emperors or kings or even governors. They, they negotiated down to the lowliest um, sort of administrative functional role, which was a president. Uh, well, not the only kind of that, leader we need is a, a George Washington, a Thomas yeah. Jefferson kind of person. <laughs> well, the president today doesn't have that much power, as you can see. What happened last time? The bureaucracy underneath the government. The, the president can say whatever they want, and if the the people underneath don't do what he says, it doesn't happen. They do completely different things. In fact, they go against him. Um, now, whether you like the president or not, he was elected president. And he, if he's trying to implement an agenda and then they're just fighting against him, doing the opposite. It sort of makes you realize that the, well, the bureaucracy is so big. That's why you go to Washington, D.C., and you see that 90 percent of people vote for for staying in power. I mean, they're, they're living a different life, a different world that we everybody else is. They have different rules. They have different benefits. That should never happen. 
right? Why why do they have different benefits than everybody else? Like, oh yeah, you you have a special pension plan, you have a special health insurance. Everything is different if you're in the government, if you're part of Congress. That shouldn't that shouldn't be the case, right? But how do you fix that? If if Texas has their own government, they should they should implement some rules where that cannot be. Like if you're going to be part of government and you're going to be part of a, a politician and you have to have be the same exact rules as everybody else. You can't have your own little like oh, me. I'm going to benefit status, so I'm in a better situation because and then you can't be there forever. I mean, like that's my career. I'm going to be in government for 40 years. <laughs> Anyways. We already have a no, part-time we legislature. We only meet every other year. Yeah. That yeah, made me so happy when I read that. I was like, you guys only meet? I was like, oh my God, that's so awesome. Like, please, let's make this more like everywhere. Because I, mean, I was like, that is just the best thing I've ever heard. Well, people have to do real jobs. Like it's not, it, it can't be their job being a state representative or a state senator. Yeah, well, Wyoming legislature's part-time part also. Legislature too. Yeah. It's in and, and the federal government one was supposed to be part-time. Originally was part-time. They were all farmers and they did other things. Constitution says something like Congress uh, shall meet on the second Tuesday in November, unless they pick some other day. Like <laughs> that's what they thought then that job should be. You go to Washington, they would meet on starting on Tuesday in November, and they would be back home by Christmas. Maybe they have to come in in January for a little while, but they all were farmers. Like they had to go in the spring. They needed to be on their farm planning. Like, like it wasn't a full-time job. There wasn't supposed to be that much to do. You know, when George Washington, when, when Thomas Jefferson was president, there was one employee in the treasury department, secretary of the treasury. It was one person. Like that was enough to run everything that the treasury department had to do. Like people in D.C. now, they would think it's ludicrous that one person could do everything that the Treasury Department is supposed to do. This isn't what the founders envisioned. Terry, what do you think we need? Oh, I, I think we need leaders, like you're saying. I think, and I've sort of been talking about that on a couple episodes of Unsafe Space. Anyways, I was thinking about Martin Luther King uh, Jr., and I was thinking about the the reason he was targeted by the FBI in large part, I think was because he was obviously he had a lot of cultural power and, and outside of the political system. And it's the same reason they were eavesdropping on John Lennon. You know, he had a lot of cultural power and I think we need a leader who has a lot of cultural power to get us out of this mess, uh, uh, to help us get out of this mess. I don't think there's any one human savior that's going to, you know, like I know some people saw Trump as that I, I didn't, um, I don't think there's any one person, but I do think if we had some leaders like that, it would help move the needle a little bit, move the masses. Um, because most people I, I've now, after the events of the last 18 months and after reading about the Ash conformity experiments, I, I currently believe that most people are followers, at least 75% of people, they want leaders. And so we need, I, we need someone to emerge who has a lot of cultural power who is outside, in my opinion, I think they need to be outside of the political system. Maybe like you were saying, Daniel, someone that's willing to get a movement started and then let someone else run, you know, but be the face of that movement for a while. Um, and, I, and I think we need to, uh, 
start finding one another. You know, one thing that Walk Away did, uh, Walk Away was a movement. Okay, so the Tea Party was a movement, right? And Walk Away was a movement that um, was started more recently by Brandon Strzok. Uh, I did one event with them. The thing that Brandon Strzok did was he gave a name for the movement and he was a face for the movement that helped all these people who were going through the same thing find one another. And mm -hmm. You know, something reading this book, Texit, where he says there's all these people that support Texit, but they're alone. They've, the propaganda has done a good job of isolating everyone. It, I think it's in the chapter called Atomization, where people don't know that other people who would agree with them on this subject. And so we need the face. We need a campaign that's like a Texit campaign where people start to find one another and identify with one another and feel um, more comfortable being out as someone who is interested in talking about Texit. I think that needs to happen culturally. So um, I, I just wanted to read, I know I've talked for a long time, but really quickly for anyone listening along who hasn't read this book, you should get it. It's not that dense and it's, it's great. It's got a lot of history in it. One of the things it says here, this is a quote from <clears throat> Alexander Hamilton it says, uh, the plan of the convention aims only at a partial union or consolidation. The state governments would clearly retain all rights of sovereignty, which they before had, and which were not by that act exclusively delegated to the United States. And then this is a quote from James Madison. Each state in ratifying the constitution is considered as a sovereign body, independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act. Voluntary. Uh, in this relation, then, the new constitution will, if established, be a federal and not a national constitution. I didn't know these quotes. You know, there's a lot of stuff in here like that that I just think people don't know uh, enough about what the founders in intended and why. And and so I think we need to, as others have said, we need to, to start um, getting our, yeah, I don't have kids, nothing would. If I do, at one point, they're not going to be they're not going to be raised by the, the federal uh, education system, that's for sure. So I think we need to start um, teaching civics. And, oh, gosh, my preacher today gave such a great sermon. One of the things he said at the end was, men, it's time. Like, you need to stand up. If you're a father, like, it is your responsibility for how your kids are raised and how your kids are educated. It's your responsibility. It's not the federal government's responsibility. It's not the Department of Education's responsibility. It's your responsibility. And he said, you know, fortunately in the past year and a half, we've had a lot of parents who are just starting to realize that the federal government has been doing more than just simply uh, teaching their kids math and, and grammar. They've been in determining who they are. They're not so much, you know, it's not so much about what did you learn today? It's about who are you now? Who are you now that you've come out of this indoctrination? And so don't let the federal government determine who your kids are. It's kind of a rant. You know, the, the homeschool is a boon in the last year. It's like two or three times the number of people are homeschooling in one year. Like, like it's, it's a, it's a knee curve. Um, and you see people, you know, going along with the school board stuff and like to make the point, like, people that complain about masks in schools and they go to the school board and they, they like beg the school board to eliminate the mask rule. I'm like, no, you're, you're by doing that, you're training your children that the school board is a higher authority than, than you as a parent. That's a terrible thing to do. 
like you go to the school board and tell them, no, you can't do this. Like you order them. And, and How long but, do you think before they yeah. mandate public schools so you can't homeschool anymore? I didn't understand the question. There was an echo. Oh, I was, I was asking, how long do you think before they remove the right to homeschool and mandate uh, public school, public schooling? Well, predicting the future has a terrible track record, so I, I don't like to do it. Um, I would possible, suspect though, right? that would happen it's... in a couple of states. I could see states doing it. So my pushback on that would be that don't allow the federal government to do it. It's, it's um, not the homeschool movement either. started by state. It started by state. It it's it requires it can require not accepting some federal Department of Education funding, but the federal government can't do that. They can only use Department of yeah. Education funding to coerce a state into doing it. And yeah. I would think a state like Florida would just say no, like no, you, that's not you can't do that. Well, Keith, um, Keith, I. I agree that the federal government can't do that, but the federal government also can't have a Department of Education and can't have a National Labor Relations Board, but they do. What I think we need I to look- I the wrong verb, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what I think we need to look out for isn't, I don't think they will, I don't think that they will outlaw homeschooling. What they will do is they will use the Interstate Commerce Clause and they will require that homeschooled children receive a specific curriculum dictated by the federal government, and there will be tests dictated by the federal government to make sure they learn the right stuff at home. And I think as far as public schools, what you're gonna see is any every single public school in America receives federal funds, and you're gonna see the federal government leveraging that, forcing schools to do things the federal government wants them to do. So it's all at risk. It, it's all at risk, just from a different uh, a different attack. This will be some questions on that exam. Um, how many genders are there? If you say anything other than an unknown figure that goes on forever, then you're wrong. And they'll also ask, is it possible to be racist towards white people? <laughs> and the answer be, you know, it'll be like all the social justice questions where they've redefined reality. What is two plus two? Well, it's not four. I'll tell you that. <laughs> like, and is federal law supreme over state law in all cases? And does the Supreme Court have the final say in what's constitutional? And who was the best Those president? Be yeah. Who is the best president? <laughs> I was going to read something. Uh, I have it open that a lot of people don't know. Uh, I point this out, but it's from the Declaration of Independence that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote, mostly. He said that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. A lot of people don't know that, but that is what the U.S. is founded on. So to that's argue that the reason the Second Amendment. That's people forget why the Second Amendment is what it is. It's because of that exact thing, you know, to protect the people from the federal government. Obviously, it's been lost over time. Sorry, Keith, I interrupted you. No, it's a short quote. How many awesome. people do you think, how many kids do you know know that line? No, I know it because I read it in college, but I, I would say that to Manny's point about the Second Amendment is that I keep saying this, all your rights are borrowed 
are on borrowed time if you do not have the right to bear arms. All of them. Well, look at and Australia right now. Exactly. <laughs> so, you guys, we are going to be uh, fortunate to get to interview Daniel Miller, the author of this book, uh, at some point. If he happens to be watching, I, I doubt I, it's, it's entirely our fault because I took some time and now Carter's got a baby on the way. And so we haven't set up the interview yet, but we're going to be talking with him. And if you have any questions that you would like for us to ask him, is there any anything that you, after reading this, you, you a question in your mind or some of the stuff we've brought up in this discussion? I have a random weird question. Yeah. If Texas were to uh, become its own country, what would happen to the nukes? Would we just give up the nukes that we have? Good question. He, I want to know uh, who but, some of the leaders are in his opinion. Yeah, same here. And how do we participate? I, I've got no idea of what to do. <laughs> I am, you know, unless I want to become the leader on this. Um, uh, there, it should be clear if you're interested in this, like where you go and what you do, how you help. But there's a plan. I want to ask him. I want to ask him when he spoke at Porkfest on the main stage. How come he didn't have a hat on? Hmm. I uh, want to know. Is... I I want to know like what he would, uh, how he would, because he had some predictive scenarios on how the U.S. federal government would react to Texas succeed. What would their reaction be if, when Texas succeeds, and other states decide they want to secede with them? They also vote for secession. How would how does he think the federal government re would react to that? Yep, that's my question too. Oh, um, and then I, we've we've been at this for two hours, guys. So, do you have any final comments on the book? Final thoughts on the book before we wrap it up? I'm so thankful everybody joined us today. Uh, I would like to remind you that. I'm recruiting for the great state of Texas. And if you'd like to find out more information about the town I live in, you can contact me at carry at unsafespace.com. Just be patient with my response time. Um, we, we have a guest room. We're just east of Austin. Sue has a guest room. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys. Sue wants to say something. Um, as I go totally blank. Uh, oh, well. <laughs> Train derailed again. <laughs> well, thank you all oh, for joining oh, us. Oh, I got it. I got it. So the one, the, the one thing that um, just occurs to me over and over is how how the coming a part of the United States is accelerating. I I don't think much is really predictable, and I don't think anything is predictable beyond a couple of months out. That's it. I think you're right. And as he was talking about in the book, there was the part where he's saying, you know, you need, you only need 10% of a population uh, to move the whole and that these things usually just seem to happen suddenly when they do happen. And that made me think of woke ideology, my old belief system and how it became mainstream seemingly overnight after George Floyd, but it wasn't overnight. It had a long, slow boil and then boom, it happened. Um, but 
but yeah, I, in terms of where things are going from here, I think, I think some, when things happen, whenever I think things are going to get pretty bad, um, uh, in terms of inflation. And I think it's just going to seem to be out of the blue for some people um, when it's not, we all know it's not out of the blue. Um, okay. So I want to thank everybody for joining us and especially the people in the chat who uh, were just joining, uh, not on camera, but, but adding insight in the chat. Thank you for being here. Highly recommend this book, text it. If you guys haven't read it yet. Um, our next book for book club, we're going back to fiction on November 21st. If you want to mark your calendars, we are going to be discussing Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood's one of my favorite authors. I've loved her since high school. Um, and recently she's gotten into some hot water for her comments that uh, go against the, the, I don't know if you guys follow her on social media, but she's got gotten in trouble much the way Chappelle has about some of her comments. And um, I think they're going to throw her out of the woke cult. Anyway, I hope you'll join us for The Handmaid's Tale. That'll be November 21st. If you want more info to go to unsafespace.com to the book club page. It's always free to join and participate. And Frank reminded me that I need to say uh, we have mandatory subscriptions now on our channel. You're not allowed to be voluntarily subscribing. You must subscribe or under penalty of being fired. Do we have to, do we have to subscribe twice and then get a booster subscription? Yeah, you need to get a booster subscription because also because YouTube will uh, unsubscribe you, your subscription will stop working at random times. So, and if you don't subscribe, my subscribe won't work. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Also, you just need to show you're a good person. So, uh, I'm naturally subscribed, so it's okay. No, hmm. it doesn't. <laughs> no such thing. Support that. Such thing, Josie. Josie, uh, Beverly, do you want to take us out? Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and scheduled for ideological vaccination. To avoid cancellation, please update your ideological contact tracing app on your smart device immediately. Here's a fun fact. Only vaccinated black lives matter. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. 
Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.